Well, good evening. And maybe for the last time this Christmas, Merry Christmas to all of you. Happy that you uh, decided to attend our Christmas Eve service. I think this is the third Christmas service that we've had in the past two weeks. So um, if you have a Bible, Matthew chapter 1 is where we're going to be. We're just going to read one verse out of Matthew chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one provided in the seat beneath or in front of you. And you can turn to page 681. I'm going to read one verse out of Matthew, verse 21, which will be our text for this evening. I'm going to read that in just a second, and then we're going to pray and ask God for his help. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Amen. May God bless that brief reading of his word this evening. Let's bow together and pray. Our gracious God and Father, on this Christmas Eve, we would ask for help for each of us here this evening to know and to believe and to apply that our only hope in life and in death is that we are not our own, but that we belong body and soul, both in life and in death, to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who was born into this world, though he always was. Jesus Christ, who was sinless as he walked this earth, though tempted and tried. Jesus Christ, who was crucified by sinful men, though innocent. And Jesus Christ, who was resurrected by your mighty power, and who sits at your right hand this evening, waiting to judge the living and the dead at your command. Help us all now in our time of need, for Jesus' sake, amen. In his book, A Spectator's Guide to Jesus, John Dixon gives an account in the year 1783 in which a young man named Samuel Payton, who at 15 years of age was sentenced to seven years in prison for the theft of a piece of cloth. After serving two years of his seven-year sentence, he was pardoned. Two years later, Samuel Payton, excuse me, was caught in possession of a stolen watch, which he said he won in a card game. The truth in time came out as it always will, and his explanation was proven a lie, and because of this, he was promptly sentenced to seven years of transportation, which meant that he was to be chained to the hull of the ship Alexander and head to New South Wales, Australia, Australia in a kind of prisoner work program. Eight months later, having safely arrived, Samuel was immediately sent to work as a stonemason. He was there only a few months and found himself in trouble again as he was stealing again. This time he stole a shirt, some stockings, and a comb from one of the officers in charge of the work program. He was tried and he was sentenced on June 23, 1788, and his sentence was death by hanging in two days. And so on June 25, 1788, he was hung on the public gallows in Sydney, Australia, hung for the theft of a shirt, some socks, and a comb. So the young man found himself dead at the age of 21. Now, we would know nothing at all about Samuel Payton. His name would just be another name and a prison log somewhere in the South Pacific if it wasn't for the letter he wrote his mother with the help of a friend the night before he died. 
a letter that in a series of events that only God could do was read by a very important officer of the Royal Navy who having read it, placed a copy of it in his own private journal, which was later published. And this letter, I think, captures perfectly for all of us this Christmas Eve evening, a wonderful expression of the grace of God that we so desperately need, found only in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to mark that. This letter is a wonderful expression of the grace of God that we so desperately need that is found only in Jesus. Jesus, who, as we read, is the Savior who will save his people from their sins. Let me just quote from the letter now. My dear and honored mother, with what agony of soul do I dedicate the last few moments of my life to bid you an eternal farewell, my doom being irrevocably fixed, and ere this hour tomorrow, I shall have entered into an unknown and endless eternity. I will not distress your tender maternal feelings by any long comment on the cause of my present misfortune. Let it therefore suffice to say that impelled by that strong propensity to evil, which neither the virtuous precepts nor example of the best of parents could eradicate, I have at length fallen an unhappy though just victim to my own follies. For these and all my other transgressions, however great, I appeal to God's forgiveness, and I am encouraged by the promise of that Savior Jesus who died for us all. I trust to receive that mercy in the world to come with my offenses have, which my offenses have deprived me of all hope or expectation of in this. The affliction which this will cost you, I hope the Almighty will enable you to bear. Banish from your memory all my former indiscretions and let the cheering hope of a happy meeting hereafter console you for my loss. Sincerely penitent for my sins, sensible of the justice of my conviction, and sentence, and firmly relying on the merits of the blessed Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, I am at perfect peace with all mankind, and trust I shall yet experience that peace which this world cannot give. Commending my soul to the divine mercy, I bid you an eternal farewell. Then it's signed, your dying son, Samuel Payton, Sydney Cove, 24th of June, 1788. Now, as we think about Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21, as we think about the verse that you shall give him the name Jesus because he will save you from your sins, I think we find that this letter captures the very meaning of Jesus' life and the very meaning of his death. As the young criminal Samuel said, Jesus is the Savior who died for us all. And this Christ child who is born will one day head to a Jerusalem cross to pay in his death and to pay in his blood for all our wrongdoings. Now, I don't want you to miss that. This child born is headed to Jerusalem cross to pay in his death and blood for all our wrongdoings. I I always wonder sometimes, we hear that so frequently if we're Christians, I always wonder if it moves us anymore. The child was promised in the book of Genesis as humanity quickly rebelled against its maker. The child's heritage was preserved in the Davidic dynasty in keeping with God's holy word. And this child was born by God's power and God's set plan and foreknowledge because God loves his justice. God loves this wicked world. And God knows that the saving that we need is the saving that we are unable to provide for ourselves. So this evening, we're going to head, have two headings to guide us through our time together in this one verse. The first heading is pretty simple. Jesus was the Savior in his life. Now, from the very beginning of Jesus' entry into the world, the word from heaven was being proclaimed. 
And the word from heaven was, Jesus is the Savior who will save his people from their sins. Now, mere men and women like you and I and mere men and women of the first century could never know those things if God did not break into this broken world and declare this with certainty and with authority. And this authority and this certainty was revealed by angels, which are God's messengers, and written in the Gospels, which is God's Word. And this is simply called the doctrine of revelation. And all that means is this, that we would never know these things unless God, in mercy, determined to tell us And so what we find in Jesus is the fullness of God's revelation to us and we know that because his word tells us that. And so if Jesus is the savior that we sang to and if Jesus is the savior who can save us from our sins as verse 21 reveals, this makes Jesus the most important person in our lives. It's true, isn't it? If what is said about Jesus is true, that he's the savior, then that makes Jesus the most important person in our lives. Bible scholars tell us that the title Christ captures Jesus' status as the one who's been given divine authority. And the title Savior captures Jesus' mission to rescue people from divine judgment. So the reason the gospel writers tell us, the reason for the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ is strikingly clear. And it's only one reason. People need to be saved from their sins. People need to be saved from God's divine judgment. Now, is that how you and I understand the Christmas story? Is this, if you would, the big deal in our celebrations? We, we thank God for the four evangelical Fs. Family, friends, food, and fun. I am all in on all those things. But in our celebrations, we must include meaningful time to thank our God for his son who grew up to pay a debt that he never did owe so that we could have eternity that we would never deserve. And here is the big difference between century 21 and century number one. In the first century, the culture was so keenly aware of God's judgment that there was this great difficulty convincing people that sinners could actually be welcomed by God into his heaven and be loved by him. Almost everyone lived, if you would, with the shakes. But in the 21st century, probably because of a misguided understanding of Jesus' own teaching, many people would find it difficult to convince that we are A, actually sinners in need of saving, or B, God would even want to judge us at all. But loved ones, listen carefully. You'll never find Jesus in the teachings of the New Testament. You never find it that God will accept men and women and young people because he is pleased with the way that they are or that he is pleased just because they are. Far from it. Jesus, because he loves us, had the courage to call out sin as sin. And he would say such difficult things for people to hear like, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one, God, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So Jesus calls greed, greed. He says, in humanity's inability to share generously, or our propensity to hoard things while, while human need is everywhere, Jesus says that's a sin and it's horrible. And God's judgment is on that sin. He calls out people who loves the creation but not loving the creator. In the story of the prodigal son, the son wanted everything the father had to offer. He just didn't want the father. Sin, 
according to Jesus. He calls out people who have their own views about what they should believe and how they should behave, those who neglect the keeping of God's commandments. And Jesus says to them, my truth has no rivals. And that is why it is only in the backdrop of humanity's sin can we discover the actual, the, the actual immensity of God's love. So in Jesus' name, And in Jesus' earthly mission, we see Jesus seeking to save sinners from the coming judgment that sinners deserve. And here's the great part, at least if you're someone like me. The fantastic thing about Jesus' earthly ministry was the kind of people that Jesus saved were the kind of people who you would think would be first in line for his judgment and not his mercy. So, for example, in Luke chapter 7, there's a lady. She's a lady of the night. And she comes to Jesus She comes to Jesus in all her brokenness and all her misery and she feels it and she's guilty and she says to Jesus, help. And Jesus says to her, your faith in me has saved you. Go in peace. Go in peace. I could just hear the lady say, go in peace. Are you kidding me? Do you know how long it's been since I even known a speck of peace and no man that I have ever been with has ever told me to go in peace? But see, that's the point. There is no other man like Jesus. He's the God man. He's the most important man. He's the only person on earth that can ever save us from our sins. Or how about Zacchaeus, the wealthy tax collector? He had been exploiting his fellow Jews on behalf of Rome. And he was taking a big fat profit for himself. It seems like less and less people like wealthy business executives these days. And it was the same in those days. A fellow like Zacchaeus would have been the last person anyone would say had a chance of salvation. However, again, Luke records for us in chapter 19 that Jesus invites himself to Zacchaeus' home, try that tonight, and says to Zacchaeus basically his name. Jesus says this, Today salvation has come to this house, for the Son of Man came to seek and save what was lost. You see, it's just what I said. Jesus was the Savior in his life. As he walked this earth, he was saving those who knew themselves in need. Because those are the only ones that Jesus can actually save. Those who know themselves in need. Our second point, not only is Jesus a Savior in his life, but he is also the Savior in his death. So let's think just for a minute. When Jesus walked the earth, he went around doing good, and he went around doing these incredibly powerful deeds, deeds that baffled his onlookers, blind people seeing, dead people rising, possessed people calming down and coming to a right state of mind. And people read that these days and they say, yes, sir, that is what I want. I want that power in my life. I want that mountain moving, storm stopping power. And from time to time, you'll hear people say, we need to get back to that. And then the people will know, and we'll know that Christianity is important. And it'll it'll become important again because we need this power. But you know, when I think about that, that smells too much like the world. Because the power stories in the gospel about Jesus, the healing stories, the weather-changing stories, the dead-rising stories, as Jesus spoke life-altering words, are not there to impress. Those stories are not there to impress, but rather explain so that we might believe that this Jesus who is saving people in his life is going to save people by his death. Before his exit from this world, he said and did things to that end. I want you to think when Jesus did all those baffling deeds, 
with all the good that he had done and said, than to die as he did in such a weak position. The few words that he spoke at his trial, getting beaten to a bloody pulp. Savior? Really? I could hear the people say, really? This is our Savior? And the claim that was explained in his name, the claim to same people, would be turned around as an insult to Jesus when he lived. The people would say, what kind of Savior? What kind of Savior is is a Savior that's powerless to save himself? How can he save himself? Excuse me, how can he save me if he can't even save himself? It seems logical, but it's not theological. Listen to your Bible, Luke 23. The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he's God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers came up and mocked him. They offered him wine and vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. So you see, first there was the religious might. Then it was the Roman soldiers. And then one of the criminals crucified alongside Jesus all draw attention to this incredible irony here. The one who claimed to save people from God's coming judgment can't even save himself from Roman judgment. How foolish. How foolish. The message of the cross is foolish, the Bible says, to those who are perishing. But, and this is wonderful, what much of the world saw as shameful, foolish failure was actually victory for only those who knew what Jesus taught. Because it was precisely because Jesus was not saving himself on the cross that Jesus Christ became the savior of the world. So what only the eyes of faith can see is that A, sinners need to be saved from God's judgment. And they can be only because B, the savior Jesus bore that judgment. Let me say that again. Sinners can be saved from God's judgment only because the savior Jesus bore that judgment. But, as is so often the case, and I I don't know why this is, but I have my reasons. In the Gospels, only the really, really, really bad people get this. The leaders can't get it. The religious people can't get it. The soldiers can't get it. And the crowds can't get it. There's only one man, there's only one man at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ in that setting that was saved. And he was the bloody criminal hanging next to Jesus Christ. Listen to your Bible again from Luke. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said. Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. It's a wise man. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come and to your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. Now if you're thinking that is fantastic, isn't it? For as long as I've been able to read the Bible, I've always, always, always loved those words. Why have I always, always, always loved those words? Because it's so incredibly simple. You ready? Mercy, please. Mercy, Father. I don't want to be punished for that which I know I have done. Please, please, mercy which is at the heart of Christmas. Line all the different gospel accounts up, and this is what you'll get. We need God's mercy. We need Jesus to come and save us from our sins. And that takes us back to Mr. Samuel Payton, our young criminal, who was absolutely right when he said, 
I appeal to God's forgiveness and I am encouraged by the promise of that Savior Jesus who died for us all. I trust to receive that mercy in the world to come which my offenses have deprived me of, of all hope or expectation of in this. And there he was, wisely appealing to God's forgiveness and believing the promise of the Savior Jesus who died for us all. Now, when I was a child growing up in South Florida, I loved flashlights and I loved magnifying glasses. I had a rather large magnifying glass given to me for a birthday gift, and it was absolutely fantastic. And it became even more fantastic when I discovered that it could do more than just magnify things. I found out that if you took that magnifying glass and you put it up against the noonday sun and had just the right angle, the possibilities of what you could do were just infinite. So I found that you could take a piece of paper, you could take a leaf in the noonday sun, you could take that glass, shine it the right way, and you could burn the living daylights out of things. I found that you could burn patterns on trees. And best of all, I found that if you had the gumption to hold down your big sister, you could hold that magnifying glass to her face, and you could scare the living daylights out of her. Because you know what I'm saying, right? You take the magnifying glass and you set it at just the right angle and then the rays of the sun come and all of a sudden there's that intensity that's so darn hot that it just burns things. Well, this is what I want you to do as we get ready to conclude. I want you to think of this, this huge magnifying glass. I want you to imagine it in your mind's eye. with This huge magnifying glass, only this is a moral magnifying glass. And let's just say that it's as big as this room. And through that magnifying glass is passing not the sun's rays, but God's righteous anger, his righteous indignation on selfishness, on hatred, on rebellion, on laziness, on blasphemy, on gossip, on lust, on the brutality, the pride just in my own heart. The sin of rebellion against God, the times that I've said no to him, despite the fact that he gives me each breath. Now, I want you to imagine all God's righteous anger being focused through that huge magnifying glass the size of this room and coming down, down, down until with horrible intensity, it hits one man at one moment in history with such overwhelming intensity until the man, this one man cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And right through Jesus' life, in his name, Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins, this is where he was heading. That is where the baby is heading, heading to that moment when all God's right anger on our sin would just plummet down on Jesus Christ. Why? Well, because he was given the name Jesus and he had come to save us from our sins. And Jesus does that. He takes the full punishment of all our sins. So Jesus was a savior in life. Jesus is the savior in his death. So the only question I have as I think through these things is, is Jesus your Savior? Isn't that a fair question? Our time is just about done. Two matters I want to put before us all. First, if you're a Christian, if you call yourself a follower of Christ, are you grateful? If you're a Christian, are you grateful for Jesus coming to save you from your sins? And if you are, how do you think you should express that gratitude? And does that gratitude grow in intensity as the years you are given go by? Second, let's say you're not a Christian, and if you're here and you're not a Christian, it is wonderful to have you, but I'm going to give you a Christmas test. Here's the Christmas test. If you were to die tonight and you found yourself before God, and he said, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? So, so 
in your mind's eye, speed yourself to the judgment tonight. The The risen Christ promises we will be raised. He got through death. We will get through death. So in your mind's eye, take yourself to that moment. What would, to you, what would you say to God when he says, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Would you say, you've been good enough? Would you say, you've done enough? Would you say, they've been worse? Would you say, you've been very, very kind and very, very nice? Would you say, I'm very, very old? Would you say, you've had a difficult this life, you deserve a better next life? Would you say things like, I go to church, I've been baptized, I've been christened, and on and on, I'm spiritual? Would you say that you don't care? But that's the question, isn't it? When it comes to be accepted by God, saved from his coming wrath, are you trusting in Jesus to rescue you? Or are you trusting in yourself? Because listen, if you're trusting in yourself, then why did Jesus have to die? If you're trusting in yourself, and your goodness isn't good enough, then why did Jesus have to go and through these horrible events that I described and die as an innocent man? I want you to leave here with just a few things. Sin is so serious. And the judgment for that sin is going to come. And sin only has one cure. And the cure comes through one man, Jesus Christ, who came to save us from our sins. And if you're thinking through these things, then you might think that you... You're powerfully loved because God would send his own son to die. I have one son. I would not send him to die for anyone. And then think of this as a gift, a good gift, a gift that you're not supposed to pass by, a gift that you're supposed to reach for, unwrap, open it, worship the king who's inside of it. This Christmas, 2012, can be the start of something brand new. I thank you for your attention. The best of wishes for you this Christmas and may God have mercy on us all. Let's bow and pray. If you know yourself outside this amazing love in Christ, then I would invite you to make a prayer like this your own prayer. Just say to him, Lord Jesus Christ, I admit I am more sinful and weaker than I ever would believe. But through you, I am more loved and accepted than I ever would dare hope. I thank you for paying my debt, bearing my punishment, and offering me forgiveness. I turn now from my sin and receive you as my Savior. And loved ones, if you did that, the Bible says that whoever comes to Christ, he will never turn away. Hear our prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, this Christmas Eve.